Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features Annalisa Berner, violist of the Haven String Quartet and senior resident musician of Music Haven. We hope you enjoy. Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore, and my amazing and delightful and wonderful co-host today in my Zoom room is the wonderful Dr. Adam Paul Cordell. How are you today, my dear? I'm doing well, Rosie. How are you? Not too bad. Little sleepy from getting off a red eye, but that these are the things we do for the podcast. <laughs> So to talk a little bit about our guest today, we're really excited to have Annalisa Berner from Music Haven and the Haven String Quartet. The mission of Music Haven is to empower and connect young people through exceptional tuition-free music education, mentoring, and performance by our resident musicians in the heart of New Haven, giving all kids a chance to play, which is really amazing. And then the String Quartet, the Haven String Quartet, also have had various accolades from the New York Times uh, and NPR and are just a budding string quartet made up of performers and teachers. So without further ado, hi Annalisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. So Annalisa, I want to begin by chatting with you a little bit about your mission statement because you include the word mentoring. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how the organization provides uh, mentorship beyond education? This is one of the most special things about Music Haven. Any classical musician knows that the relationship between teacher and student is a truly special one. There are few other situations in which a non-familial adult gets to watch and participate and support your development from as young as age six, all the way up through 18 and beyond. In my seven years at Music Haven, I've now shepherded kids from second grade to ninth grade, and many of them stay all the way until they graduate. And we have now a budding alumni network. One of the ways that Music Haven facilitates those long-term relationships is by hiring resident musicians full-time. A lot of teaching organizations have their staff as hourly, whereas because I'm a full-time person at Music Haven, I can put my full heart and a lot of my days into the program. I can develop culturally responsive teaching materials. I can... Uh, be interacting with the students and the families over this long term. And I know that Music Haven will support me in my career and as an individual, just as much as I am supporting Music Haven. So I actually wanted to push on that a little more with regards to the string quartet and the teaching. Is your string quartet's mission separate from or rooted within the overall organization's mission at New Haven? I'm really glad you asked. It is rooted within the organization. 
So to talk about some of the kids that you are representing through this program, in your most recent impact report, the organization states that 89% of students belong to families whose income falls well below the 200% of federal poverty line, and that 55% of your students speak a language other than English at home. Further, more than 60% of your students identify as Black, African American, Latino, and or Hispanic. How were you prepared or perhaps not prepared to work with students whose backgrounds diverge so distinctly from your own and the group's own? One quick update to the impact report is that we now have 10% in the other category, which is predominantly recent arrivals from Afghanistan mm. that my colleague Yaira Machikumova has done a really intentional project with her Music Bridge program of reaching out to recent refugee communities here and doing all of the extra work that it entails to make sure that they have the resources they need to feel at home in our program, as well as in the sanctuary city of New Haven. And is that something that um, you're working with for all refugees, especially sort of given everything going on in the Ukraine right now? Absolutely. It's one of our most treasured programs. It's such a good question about the the differences in demographics and background between where I grew up uh, in Upper Arlington, which was a predominantly white suburb of Columbus, Ohio, and where I went to school, the Cleveland Institute of Music, a predominantly white conservatory, uh, private school. So all of the requirements for wealth that go with that. I got some very important training doing my uh, fellowship at Community Music Works in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, after grad school, some really important teacher training. Um, and then also having moved to New Haven, meeting up with a couple friends who got me into the Yale African American History class, uh, which is available online through Yale Open Courses, but you definitely need an accountability buddy to stick with anything like that, as well as uh, various other experiences in anti racism training and activism, um, some of which you know, came as results of my making mistakes or, or having moments of defensiveness and conversations about race and classical music. So it hasn't been a smooth road because we're not really given the tools growing up to deal with the realities of race in our country and in the world. But being in the struggle and continuing to engage in the process, accept discomfort and make incremental progress and put on my listening ears are all ways that I try to, uh, you know, grow a little every chance I get. In terms of how you find yourself working in this context from, you know, without having the kind of educational background, it sounds like it was mostly a, like you had to, to really seek these opportunities outside of your educational experience. What are some of the ways that you could see conservatories or schools of music working to address this kind of training within the conservatory so that students don't have to go so far outside of it when they are going through the process of getting their degrees? I think it's really important that conservatories start to address these issues because as arts funding in public schools has waned, funding for Sistema-inspired programs is trying to fill the gap. But when young musicians, particularly young white musicians like myself, come out of conservatory, we have basically no pedagogy training and certainly no mm -hmm. culturally responsive or anti-racist pedagogy training, mm -hmm. which can be really damaging for the kids. Mm -hmm. um, if you come in with a white savior complex and no tools, it's not a good teaching situation for the teacher who doesn't know how to facilitate 
a healthy and productive classroom, that's not a good situation for the kids who have <laughs> a teacher with no tools who may walk out on them in 18 to 24 months. Mm -hmm. um, so I think really making it a priority, recognizing that this is a really important part of the landscape. Most of us will not get full-time orchestra jobs. Most of us will not be in recording, touring, string quartets. So acknowledging that that is the reality of a lot of our careers, uh, considering that a success, considering that um, a real and true and important way to be a musician, and then partnering with organizations that already have expertise, because we don't need to reinvent the wheel. There are wonderful schools of education. There are wonderful uh, liberatory organizations doing work. Um, conservatories can dedicate the resources and the time to partnering with organizations who, who know a lot about this stuff and can help their students go out into the world prepared to do less harm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because it sounds almost like a, a combination between more pedagogy training and more arts leadership collaboration types of training, which I think is a really, uh, I, ha I wouldn't say that I would have thought of the arts leadership collaboration component necessarily. So I think that that's a really interesting insight. And hopefully forms of collaboration that take into account abilities to uh, step up or step back. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> being able to look around the room and see, okay, who is speaking, who's had the floor and who is bringing an underrepresented viewpoint into this room? How can I help create a situation where it's safe and valued for them to contribute? Arts accessibility is central to what your organization does. How do you work to promote access to the arts for the community members beyond your students and their families? The HSQ has done work to have a footprint across New Haven by playing concerts out in the community, outdoor shows. We used to be on the string quartet truck, which was a flatbed truck that would appear around. Now we're doing what we still lovingly refer to as truck concerts, but without the truck. We're looking to be increasing our presence in libraries and in parks. For Hispanic Heritage Month, each September 15th to October 15th, we visit uh, old folks' communities, Casa Otonial, and also the Mary Wade Retirement Home, uh, presenting works of Hispanic and Latino composers. And this year, for the first time, we were able to make our dream a reality of having a student chamber music program mm -hmm. run by resident musician Patrick Doan. So that has only increased our ability to put the music out there um, at libraries again, but also at uh, sidewalk festivals around town. Also, our Harmony in Action Chamber Orchestra is going to be performing at Riverfest, a really great festival with you know, food and beer and on the riverside and live music and vendors. And so they get to play their entire set of pieces that they've been working on this year at that public performance. Also this year, for the first time, we collaborated with a New Haven visual artist who happens to be a parent of one of the students uh, in our program. And he did um, a gallery showing uh, at one of our concerts and was able then to sell a lot of his work um, to concert audiences. So we're looking forward to continuing to collaborate with Music Haven parents and hopefully other groups around New Haven. 
So Music Haven focuses on how students learn through chamber music to listen to each other, to work as a team, to communicate, dedicate themselves in service to creating something beautiful together, to build community, to develop resilience and self-confidence, and to experience collective struggle and success. As you are well aware, our society continues to descend into ever-deepening levels of violence and hostility. Um, something that is often difficult for children and adolescents to cope with, and certainly challenging for many teachers to address in the classroom, right, or in the studio. It's clear that all of our students need access to these foundational principles in their education. Uh, and we're just wondering, when you teach, do you connect the work that you're doing within the studio in any way to the outside world, or do you try to create what you do as a safe space, how do you approach some of these societal challenges in a way um, that is supportive and, and giving these students these coping skills? It's definitely a difficult balance to strike. And that exact duality is one that we talk about a lot. Is this a safe space that insulates kids or is it made a safer space by using age appropriate language to discuss things and acknowledge things that are happening so that they don't feel like I had an experience of a microaggression against me? Is it because I did something wrong? Is it because I'm weird? No, it's because this is part of a broader trend. It's not you as an individual, it is this societal thing. And then can putting it into a contextual framework lighten the load at least a little bit um, because it's not about you as an individual. So we do have, um, we have group conversations uh, in our Harmony in Action Orchestra. My colleague, Philip Boulanger, uh, leads those conversations with kids. We also have those smaller talks when masks were coming off in some of the schools around and not others. That was a conversation we had in my chamber music group. And individual kids also do have the opportunity to, um, to express what is going on with them, particularly in private lessons. I think the private lessons are a very important time to add that adult context and that broader context. It's amazing how things come up too. I do an exercise um, called Rosebud Thorn, where a rose is sharing something pleasant from your week, a thorn is sharing something unpleasant, and a bud is sharing something you're looking forward to. And sometimes, mm. particularly young kids, will tell you the most heartbreaking thorns and then switch right to their bud, which is, you know, eating pizza today uh, when they leave the program. And so making sure those social emotional learning and, and sharing opportunities are there um, in the programming can also just open the door so the kids can ask you for what they need, even if they're not using those words. In reading your website, uh, I've seen that you are approaching your hiring practices a little differently to ensure more inclusive faculty and staff. Can you talk about how you've been approaching that? Yes, we have started by advertising all of our open positions within our Music Haven families. They provide this ready-made network of people who live and work in New Haven and whose collaboration is totally invaluable to how we run the program. We have two Music Haven parents now on staff, Takara Joyce, our operations manager, who absolutely keeps the wheels on, and Legia Davenport, our development associate, who is constantly bringing in grant money and prizes from organizations who never used to even pay attention to us. Um, so we've been able to find these bedrock employees who are also Black women and are also representing multiple constituencies 
uh, people who live in New Haven, people who are whose kids are active participants in our program, um, as well as just first class professionals who make us more confident with every day. A wonderful thing about your program is that all of your educational programming is provided 100% tuition free to any student who is interested in studying. To start off with, here's the nuts and bolts. Where on earth does funding for a program like this come from? Our programming is 100% free. And I want to mention that a couple of years ago, we did switch to an income cap. Um, we used to be neighborhood based. New Haven is divided into neighborhoods, both sort of politically um, and de jure. And uh, due to the forces of gentrification, we wanted to make sure we were still providing lessons to those who have need um, because there's plenty of need in New Haven. So we benchmarked it to Connecticut's uh, Medicaid program, which is called Husky. Mm -hmm. So families have to qualify for Husky. That number changes based on how many individuals in your family. So once you're Husky qualified and you enroll in Music Haven, um, you get a totally free instrument and totally free lessons and free transportation from the public schools to get to us and we provide a shuttle to get you home and that is paid for through a mix of um, individual donors many thanks to our individual donors uh foundation support many thanks to the foundation and government as well and we have some earned income through uh, hsq concerts workshops residencies things like that How did your organization approach COVID accessibility issues, especially given that things like high quality internet access tends to be limited to folks with means? It was a project and in particular our admin team dove right in, uh, getting laptops, tablets, the devices that families needed, both from Music Haven, sourcing them from board members, breaking out all of the creative options to get the tech into the hands of the kids. We also did some really aggressive communicating about the uh, discounted internet options that were available, though internet inequality is real. So we still definitely felt those effects. Yeah, this is just an aside, but the person who invented the internet wasn't didn't he want it to be like a public service thing that everyone just had access to? I'd, and of course, it's been monopolized by companies and we could rant about this all day, but it's the person who created it didn't want it to be like this. At this point, it's essentially a utility, especially when something that's supposedly public like education is involved. 
We also were able to provide grocery gift cards and other forms of support. We got a couple grants specifically just for uh, financial support to our families because organizations recognized how we were in relationship with families who would have need and would be able to direct those funds where they were uh, going to be most helpful. That's really important because that's something that I have kind of noticed that whenever you have to apply for aid or a grant or something, it's very much the the onus is on you to prove that you need this. And you don't have enough time in the day anyway to, to spend on that. So it's, it, yeah, I think that's awesome that you provided that. There's, I, I think more places should make it easier to take the burden off the people who were like, hey, please help us. Yeah, time burden, education burden, um, lots of systemic things going against people who need help. So I'm really glad that we were able to smooth some of those connections. So we have come to the final question of the podcast, which uh, is always a question roulette. And Adam is going to ask the actual question, but I'm going to ask, can you pick um, question one or question two? Oh, my goodness. Question two. That's such a viewless thing to do. Yes. I'm not going to choose one. <laughs> it just doesn't feel right. I know. So if you could put together any collaboration with and for your students, what would that be? I would, I would get them the opportunity to perform live with Lizzo. Who, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yes. I would... Uh, facilitate a collaborative environment where they could work with Lizzo and perform with her because not only is her music some of the best music in the world, she's also an instrumental musician, always making her flute playing on center stage so she can inspire them in all the different ways in representing for herself as a Black woman and a musician and representing for body diversity but also just making the kind of music that they would be singing and I would be singing and everyone would be singing just in their sleep and in their waking for the rest of time. I love that. I want to see that collaboration. With that, we have come to the end of what has been an incredible uh, interview and episode talking with Annalisa Berner of Music Haven and the Haven String Quartet, uh, who provide incredible, not only performances, but education to students in New Haven, Connecticut. All of their information about their group uh, is going to be down in the show notes. And with that, we will see you in two weeks.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaverscast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Claude W.C. and Franz Schubert and performed by the Haven String Quartet. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks. <laughs>